Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Mulcast. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> After our momentous win over New Zealand, um, what is there left to do? What I mean, what's the point anymore? Give us the cup now. Give us the. <laughs> um, Ireland looked like um, a team who are uh, insanely well drilled and insanely disciplined. And they came up against a New Zealand team who... Had some slack moments, discipline-wise. I, I think in the commentary they said they're only human and if you put pressure on them, they make mistakes. And it, it's really true. It's always been true. I mean, and to an extent, you almost realise how much credit they deserve for being the best team in the world the entire time, especially coming from a relatively small population base as well. But... Uh, they look. They were out disciplined by us, and um, they looked ragged at times. And we should have won by more. What do you think? Well, I think they. I think that there was. If you describe, I always think of ragged as being something that runs through the team, and that you can see a sort of a breakdown. Whereas in this, I didn't see a breakdown in teamwork very often. What I saw was individual lapses or individual moments of petulance. Well, one from each of the second rows. Retallic very early in the game. Um, stepping around the side of the rock and grabbing a scrum half and then Sam Whitelock just being on the wrong side of the ground in the line and slapping the ball away so you know these guys are hugely experienced second rows uh, Whitelock in particular you would think of as a guy who you know epitomises not too high not too low very much a sensible crusader South Islander and it was the only man I can think of in history with a chance at three World Cups. There have been players who have won two. Yeah. Uh, That's a great the recent point. Kiwis, yeah, Oz Durant had a gap, 12 year gap between his, Timmy Horan, John Eales. Mm. You're talking about great, great players that have won two World Cups. And Whitelock's got two World Cups, but Whitelock's in the running for three World Cups. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I hadn't considered that. And, and to see a guy like that just doing something. Like none of the white the white locks are as far from petulance as you can get in in any sort of characterization of their personalities, and to see him do something which could easily and fairly be described as a petulant act on the pitch, which made no sense to him. You know, a guy who has one hundred and six caps, one hundred, you know, it's over one hundred caps anyway, and to 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 make that small grabby move deep in his own twenty two, but not under any particular pressure, not a classical. All Blacks technical foul, which is going to benefit them, was it was just unexpected. Even at that stage when they'd conceded five or six penalties already, it was it was a strange move. So obviously, you know, and I agree that your characterization they are they are just men, but them being just men makes their accomplishments even more impressive. Um, but to see them brought down individually to earth. To see them concede those s silly fouls, especially the, the completely unnecessary ones, was uh, it's 
it's a, it's a level of pressure which we've occasionally put them under before, but not for the full duration of the 80 minutes. We, we played the 82 minutes of really uh, composed but aggressive and coherent rugby. Kieran Reid said after the match that the pace wasn't as high as uh, rugby championship, which I found to be just amazing. I couldn't imagine a match played at a much faster pace. Uh, maybe maybe it was more intense, and that that's what he means. Maybe that was the difference that there was there was greater, there was less room on the pitch. Um, but certainly, I turned around to at I was I, we were all fortunate enough to be at the match, and uh, I turned around when Reed was down with the shoulder in the first half and mm. said like. They're all knackered. They're not. They're not standing around with their arms down by their side. They all have their hands on their hips, like Ben Franks, Retallick, Whitelock, the three guys. Uh, well, like two Centurions, and you know Retallick's got seventy odd caps. Uh, all have got World Cup winners medals. Um, the 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 real deal, proper, bona fide, great internationals, <laughs> and they were all, they were all blowing. And you know, I, probably Reed had a stinger, but I think there was there was a bit of uh, a decision to take the wind out of Irish sails by by slowing down um, a strategic injury. So it was, yeah, it was it was it was an incredibly fast match. Yeah, incredibly and, uh, intense match. Yeah, relentless, relentless, relentless performance from Ireland. And it, like, you know, when in the aftermath of it, I couldn't remember us making a single mistake in the. Sort of the afterglow rather than the aftermath. Now, you know, I've watched it since, watched the first half there just before um, we were uh, driven to the studio. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we, we, we actually did make mistakes, you know, not a huge amount of them, but there's a couple of incidents in the, in the first half where we tried that diamond with a pass out the back. And, you know, twice in a row in the uh, New Zealand half, we just threw a ball on the deck. Not sure, I think it was. The first one was Keane Healy, the second one was Roy Best. Put us under a little bit of pressure both times, but both times we were able to recover. I think Gary Ringrose both times just scooted around quite calmly, picked it up off the ground, did a, a throw, threw a little shimmy and got back to where we'd started from. So no net gain, an obvious mistake, but no net loss either. And, you know, some maybe Marmion's box kicks weren't as high as they should have been and you know, maybe we uh, committed one or two soak tackles. But other than that, like, you would have to be extremely picky uh, to to sort of uh, quantify it as, as anything but an A1 performance. You know, even in an A1 performance, you are going to have, you are going to have imperfections. What we talked about after the match uh, over the points was the... The level of concentration, amongst other things, was the level of concentration that Joe Schmidt has developed in the team, mm. and the you know none of us have been in the video review sessions, and I don't think any I don't think any members of the press like I think it's a real team thing, and sort of news filters out from the team about just how intense they are and who gets picked up, and the fact that even O'Driscoll gets picked up or got picked up, and um. Just how thorough that is. Just that it isn't. It isn't vindictive. He isn't picking on anybody. Uh, it's just what's expected. And it, bit by bit, 
Well, I suppose immediately. Like Schmidt, Schmidt was successful immediately in Leinster, after, well, bar the first four games when none of the players were available. And then, but season-wise, and then with Ireland, he had an immediate impact. So, but nothing as consistent as the performances of the last 12 months. Like over the last 12 months, Ireland, and this occurred to me, and I went, wow. Uh, Ireland have beaten South Africa, uh, Test series down in Australia, beaten New Zealand, beaten England and France in London and Paris, and then have beaten Scotland, Wales, Italy, Argentina, all of the home. And I was like, that's the sort of England 2003 performance. Um, now, England, you know, Johnson and Delalio's team won down in Wellington and then in, I think, in Brisbane, was it? Um, think in, in Telstra Domes. Where is that, Melbourne? Sydney. Sydney? Yeah, I think so. But we could be wrong. Um, you know, back before before going on to the World Cup. But, like, that was the sort of... They used to beat the bad guys. That's what Clive Woodward used to paint it as. He used to, you know, like it or not. Um, but they used to get a lot of those wins against the Southern Hemisphere nations. And I thought to myself, God, is that is that where Ireland are at? And then I thought, whoa, 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 better rein this in. But it's too late now. It's out. <laughs> It is out. I wish you hadn't said it. Uh, that is where we are. When you when you add up all, when you add up all the wins, you know, obviously, I think that the biggest one that is ir- not repeatable is the win over South Africa because I think they were in complete disarray when we played them. I don't think there's a chance that we'd beat them thirty-eight-three under any circumstances in the in the coming year. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, it still happened, you know. That was still the result of a match we played. That's the reason you play matches and not just discuss things. You don't just have a bunch of statisticians discussing what the likely outcome is. Um, but it's it's been a, it's been a hell of an impressive year, both results wise and performance wise. Like Matt Williams occasionally, um, you know, just sort of he, he did it, he did it during during the week. Uh, I was just giving out about Ireland not being entertaining. And, you know, Joe's, you know, he's got it playing very efficient, but it's not entertaining. And that's the sort of, it's one of these last, you you pick something that you can criticise and then harp on about it as though it's important. Like, Ireland scored a shitload of tries. I think the most tries in the Six Nations since England in 2002 Maybe 2001. Like, Ireland scored a wallop load of tries. And we win down in Australia against an Australian team which wasn't collapsing at the time. Beat uh, New Zealand. Beat Argentina. Um, it's it's a massive season. Uh, and it's a massive season of extreme, extremely high achievement on all fronts. Defence, offence, composure... And, and just sheer results. I thought about Matt Williams as well because uh, he was he was right and he wasn't right. Um, I think one of his one of his points was that you had to outscore the All Blacks with tries, and the difference was the Stocktail try plus mm. the fact that Ireland got closer to scoring tries than New Zealand did. Mm. So you have to outscore them, but the idea that you have to score four tries was was proved that you don't. Yeah. Um, and you know you, you you go back to that that semi final in the World Cup in in 2015 against South Africa, 
and New Zealand just kicked and kicked and kicked. They won 20 points to 18. Um, I think they, they scored one try. And they really, it was like a Crusaders against a Blue Bulls match. They just wanted to keep the, the Bulls out of their half. Mm. They didn't want to give... Uh, the likes of Mornay Stain, the opportunity to to kick from anywhere in the half. Like they didn't want to give away some stupid and technical infringement that would cost them three mm. points. And Richie McCall refers to this, and he actually refers to Jared Payne, um, like counterattacking from his own half, playing against the Bulls, and getting caught and giving it away. Um, plus, like the Bowers love, like that. Vortrekker mentality of circling the wagons and making loads of tackles and, and playing that sort of counter-attack in rugby mm. that, that's in their mindset they love that so he, he's right he's right and he's not right and I think it's one of these realisations that you have about what, what actually works in rugby like the, the all sing and all dancing you've got to be able to pass it and you have to have the skills like you do Ireland Ireland's skill set has improved remarkably yeah remarkably like Murray Kinsler made the point during the week about the amount of passes that the Irish team that the forwards made mm-hmm. as a percentage of total passes was higher than New Zealand's uh, about the comfort on the ball of of all the forwards like mm-hmm. about, you could see Tyg Furlong going into first receiver and I was like oh geez like Tyg's our playmaker if yeah. Sexton doesn't get the ball um, like all of those things have happened but it's the gritty intensity. It's so it is passion and it is like the physical intensity, but it's also your ability to execute all the small skills. Yeah. It's your ability to, to win all your rooks with as few guys. So we were talking about um just before, like we're talking about how unlucky Karen Marmion is to get injured, but also like just how well he played, like how mm. tough he is and like a small thing, he won a rook right at the end of the first half where our scrum came under a bit of bit of a bit of pressure. It's a it's a time of the game that New Zealand so often score a try, so yeah. often ratchet up the pace at the beginning of the match. So the the first C- half at the CJ end of the came first off half. the So CJ got it off a scrum going backwards, came went off out to towards right. to yeah, went right, went off towards the touchline. And New Zealand were in with an opportunity. Yeah. And Marmion hammered into the rook. And won it, and Keane kicked it out. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like just, just, just dribbled it over yeah. the touchline. But like you know, with no, no big backswing or anything, mm. just like dropped it onto his foot and knocked it out without getting caught. And it's, it's that sort of stuff from Marmion. Like it's, it's that ability that a scrum half has, rather than never having been in a rook before and and like ineffectually throwing like, himself uh, like in, Johnny May scrummaging, like Johnny May scrummaging. Um, like he hammered into your man. Yeah, that's. But also, you know, we, we were there and uh, like, I don't want, like, this is from Gladiator, like, you were entertained and I was entertained and you were entertained. Like, we had a, like, that was an unbelievable atmosphere to be at. Everyone who was there was in, enraptured uh, by the result, but wrapped throughout it with the game. Like, it's incredible entertainment. The idea that... You have to, you can know that entertainment only happens in one mode and it comes from running uh, rugby with mostly bad tackling as a, the other side of it is, com- to my mind, completely false. It's as false as the idea that you can only get anywhere by running 
at, at spaces rather than faces. There's loads of different ways to play rugby. To be the great team, you have to play practically all of them at some stage of the match well. You know, we had this extremely well conceived, but something that was both strategically and tactically well conceived, taught through for Stockdale's try. Um, uh, which is which is all you could want in in a sort of an attacking stratagem, but then we also had James Ryan and CJ Sander continually running it up the gut against two men, uh, time after time after time, like twenty and twenty two carries or seventeen and twenty two carries, you know, for maybe like you know maybe uh, overall total gains of like. <laughs> you know, 90 centimetres or one metre. But that, that effort, you know, th- those lads doing their roles, continually getting on the ball, continually getting us over the gain line, is an amazing effort, an amazing piece of rugby, completely worthy of admiration. And there were so many people who did their jobs and a little bit above their jobs um, that it was it was such a, such a huge team performance that it seems... Uh, one of the things we talked about earlier is like it seems a bit much that you know that there's an extra special thank you to this player or an extra special thank you to that player because I've rarely seen an Irish team performance where everyone from one to twenty three has been outstanding and that was the case. And the crowd reacted to that and the the soundbite that I used when discussing the match on Monday morning with people who, oh, you were there, oh, the atmosphere must have been incredible, was the first three or four minutes, really, that my memory of the 2016 match was that they kicked off the upended Sean O'Brien. They absolutely played as fast as they could and they scored a try. And mm-hmm. we were always on the back foot. We were always chasing that match after that. And there was always kind of the fear and the awareness that New Zealand at any stage could hit the turbo boost and we couldn't live with them and if they choose to hit turbo at the beginning and the end of the first half and the beginning of the second half they'd score 15 or 21 points mm. and try as we might we couldn't make up in between so because when, we've seen that a lot when the yeah we've seen it a lot like when the team withstood that initial onslaught there was an enormous roar when the first penalty was awarded standard and, and was, uh, yeah josh Anderflair yeah. getting out of the wall yeah and like there was there was a huge belief in the crowd that it had been repelled. Yeah, and that, the, had, that the had, meant yeah. had been repelled, and that that takes the wind out of New Zealand. Um, because they had that series of plays in New Zealand had been extremely impressive. So slick, like when Hanson or Blackstone. When, when you see them play, particularly, and again, like we were fortunate to be at the match, and the, our seats were very low. So the previous week against Argentina, I'd been I'd been in the upper tier and you very high seats and you you sort of see it's like watching like I'm going to you know, sensible soccer or something like you know archaic uh, over the top football match. Mm. So you, you can see you can see everything develop and it's very tactical. Whereas when you're down low, you just see how quick it is and how slick, and you see the guys get into position and you see like the ball is out and it's moved and it's gone and a guy is hitting a line and that just happens again and again and again. And it's like a flock of birds uh, like forming into a position all 
it is it, like it is a team sport when you see it like that like it isn't just a bunch of individual guys like the offside line is where it is you have to pass backwards and those constraints are on it and like it's it's choreographed it's, it's incredible mm. how quick it is when you see it and Ireland withstanding that was a, a huge moment in the match agreed and there's other things which you know so I, was, I was in a taxi probably Sunday <laughs> Um, and the the taxi driver said to me, "It's one thing I couldn't get over is that this fella at the end made a tackle, and then he didn't even look at the other team. He just ran back to where he was supposed to be." And, and I was like, "Oh, I know exactly." Told me there was a tackle which Joey Carberry made, made it just made a tackle, rolled out of it, literally got up face the touchline and just sprinted back into position without looking where the ball was or anything, without putting his hand on the side of a rock and putting his arm up as pillar. He's there. I know I'm not the pillar. I know I'm back out here. And he literally sprinted just directly towards the touch, with his face directly towards the touchline, not making the pretense of shuffling sideways. But that that knowledge of exactly where he was supposed to be and the composure to do exactly what he was supposed to do, you know, with two minutes to go uh, against the All Blacks when you're holding the lead, um, it was just another one of these um, pieces of evidence of how well coached they are. And, and and how sort of so there was a few in in the build up to the match when they're down at Carton in particular and they're talking about what they do during the week and Joe Schmidt said referred to them as you know the, the guys are only human and then he thought but they're so well conditioned they're almost not human so there was that side of it and then Stockdale and CJ Stander referred to playing with Lego and playing like a farming game for five year olds about like how they switch off, that it's so intense, that mm. th- there's so much concentration, there's so much focus demanded, that they want something that they can just completely lose themselves into. Mm. And it's, I, it, it gave me an incredible insight I into what, the, they the, do and same, what they do in Canada. I thought Stockdale's, where he talked about like making a millennium, he goes, I can, it doesn't take any energy from me, you know, any physical energy, and yet it allows me to switch off. I just thought, well, first, he, he's, he's a fucking genius for discovering how to do that. Uh, and secondly, Lego's great. Like, I wouldn't, I, if I could play with Lego all the time, I would totally do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I'm thinking, like, the, these, are, these are products aimed at seven-year-olds. Mm. And, like, can well, you think no, of no, more... Well, in fairness, some of the Lego think, creators 16 plus. Some of it is. I, yeah. But, like, can you think of a more hyperactive, short attention span <laughs> bunch than seven-year-olds? So, like, this is, this is very effective. Um, if you want to... That's a good point. I hadn't considered it like that. You're absolutely right. Because the demands are such... Because like, if you're talking about Joey doing that, that is just entirely conditioned. Mm. That just again and again and again, you know this is what I have to do. You're, yeah. not, even, you're not thinking about it. It's, it's not a read. It's not exactly, a decision. Because if, if you're up against the All Blacks and, like, and you've just made a tackle, like, the adrenaline spike must be enormous. Exactly, you'd be like, I want to do even more for the team. And like, now I want to tackle Whitelock. (laughs) Just to go back uh, a moment to what you were saying about um, the kind of like, the impression of attacking rugby and exciting rugby that a a box were apparently not ticking. Like, we we saw quite a bit of the Scottish game before kickoff. And having not really intended to be that interested in it because we were just very much talking about the Irish match and looking forward to that. It turned out to be very enthralling for the bit we saw. It didn't obviously miss the end of it. And Scotland scored some 
wonderful tries, mm. um, which I think uh, Matt Williams would find entertaining. Um, but they don't play anything like us and they don't win anything. Yes, but I agree with do you. you think, I, do you think, well, I mean, just out of interest, do you think Townsend has his teams playing in the same kind of like cohesive? Opti- optimally. We talked about Townsend. Like cohesive, disciplined way. We, we talked about Townsend and Conor O'Shea at the, I think they played, no, after the opening weekend of the Six Nations last year and how they were two coaches who, they were very idealistic coaches or they, they clung very much to an ideology about mm. the way that the game should be played. That sort of, and like I, I, Matt Williams is right. Like you do it to outscore the All Blacks, and he's right about attacking rugby that it is great to watch. But he's also not right in just like I think his his preconception of the way the game should be played because I've shared it isn't right. Like the game isn't won by a grand overall big picture. The game is won by doing lots and lots of small things well, tight, better than the opposition. And the reason is because guys relate to it more. Yeah, and the, the players the players relate to it more and it's 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 easier for them to understand as individuals. And I go back to the idea of choreography. Like it's not a dance. It's it's a very tired phrase at the moment, but it's very accurate. It's I say at the moment, by this stage, it's everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And because of the physicality of rugby, any sort of idea you have of holding some grand operatic operatic staging is gone by by somebody kicking the ball up in the air and smashing it, by somebody taking your space, which is why if you are much better at your individual job and like you look at Bill Belichick constantly going to do your job and like how successful the Patriots have been for so long if you can outperform your your opposite number in terms of just like consistency and concentration for the 80 like for 80 minutes or forever long mm. you're on the pitch like and it's not it's not even you it's like whoever's playing loose head if he's on for like 55 and 25 or 50 and 30 or 60 and 20 like whatever that split is if there isn't a drop from the first choice guy to the second choice guy that in she's another one of my favorite the modern game that in what is like a 23 man collision sport would differentiate you rather than like how like choreographed brilliance of putting the ball across the back line in six and you see that's not completely wrong but it isn't the ultimate truth yeah I go back to the Herm Edwards thing statement which I'm sure I've put in about six uh, posts. yeah you play to win the game that's what you play you don't, as he says, you don't play to just play. You play to win. Uh, and that's that's the whole reason why they go out there. Like Belichick is an extremely innovative coach. American football also has an unresolved dichotomy about how it's bad to be described as a finesse team. No team in American football wants to be described as a finesse team. Um, Bill Walsh was running the ultimate finesse offense, the West Coast offense. His 
his primary edict to the players was beat them to the punch. He was talking about punching the other guy in the mouth. Beat them to the punch. Punch the other guy in the mouth. And this is like the finesse. San Francisco 49ers playing the finesse West Coast offense. You know, finesse with like Charles Haley on the team. Yeah, and Ronnie Lush. Ronnie Lush, Dent, you know, like absolute monsters. So you have to, there is no, like it's not like Fords win the game, backs decide by how much, like that sort of old fashioned Bullshit. Well, there is there is an element of truth with all of these sort of things, all but it isn't. Things. Yeah, but there's not one overweening truth. The overweening truth is that you play to win. Uh, interesting around that forwards uh, decide who wins, backs decide how by how much. Um, cliche is that in the pre-game interview on Channel Four, uh, Steve Hansen is asked, um, you know, where was this match we won? And he goes, and I thought he was going to give the you know, well, you know, it's twenty-three man game. He's just like. The front five, like in every game ever. <laughs> I was just like, good on you, Steve. But he, the other thing is, I guess, just looking at the detail, the details of how Ireland play and the details, I guess, of, of how New Zealand play, but in particular having read those, um, the, the analysis by Murray Kinsler and then that, that 10-14 rugby, um, like the pack is whoever's there. And the backs are whoever's there. And obviously, you want to try and get the right people mm, in the right positions. Good but, like, the amount of times that Gary Ringrose fills in and doing, does something that isn't outside center isms, and the amount of times that Bundy, Tig, or Marmion, or someone else fills in doing something that isn't their job. Or Peter Armani stepping in to throw a lovely pass at scrum half. A beautiful pass, yeah. And, like, that's, I think, where this Irish team is getting to, where it's not. It's not like a universal thing. And the ideal thing is you have the right people in the right positions that you don't end up with Marmion taking the ball at first receiver. You end up with James Ryan there plowing into someone, mm-hmm. then miraculously getting back to his feet and plowing into someone else. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, I, I thought the, um, sort of a, the sort cohesiveness of, t- of Ireland football was, type yeah, of game. Yeah, I mean, everyone understands the logic of that team, it mm-hmm. looks like at the moment. Everyone knows why they're running there to where they are. And there's still errors made, like you said, and drops and knock-ons, but increasingly few of them. Yes, very few knock-ons in that game from us. they're just like slight execution errors rather than daft things. They didn't do a single daft thing in that game. Agreed. And it, it isn't that, oh, you know, what we're doing isn't working and panic sets in. There's, there's a complete confidence and there's go back to it there's a complete there's a concentration all the way through the match like this was really reinforced to me watching or re-watching the Argentinian match and I was like sort of, sort of when did things change and after about 60 minutes the Argentinians like Sanchez his kick started getting too long and Ireland just didn't give the ball away like Ireland were attacking in close yeah, out yeah. wide we weren't turning it over we were grinding our way through we were getting penalties we were we were able to dominate territory because we just didn't turn it over cheaply. Whereas the Argentinians in the last 20 minutes couldn't help but turn it over. And then they were forced to chase it and play from their own half. And I sort of, you know, we talked about, did Argentina expect to win that match? No. We talked, I mean, like our reaction was, my reaction was that uh, Ledesma would be the happier of the two coaches, having lost by, you know, whatever, 11, nine points, was it nine or 11? Um, 
Nine. Because Nine. of how well Argentina had played for the first 60 minutes. And I kind of question my... I question that after having rewatched that match. Um, because in that, that, that last 20 minutes is just crucial. And that's where, that's, where, that's where Ireland are so strong. It was the same against Scotland last year in, in the Six Nations. It was like the difference comes in the last 20 minutes when there is no discernible drop-off from Ireland. Yeah. Also, I think, um, and I'm sure that the people involved in the performance, I'm actually sure that they were disputed, but I think it's very difficult uh, for them to have two uh, focal points so closely together. And not that they didn't consider Argentina's, the performance against Argentina, a focal point, but they clearly knew, like, you know, they're not kept in, 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 like, in a dungeon. They know that they're playing the All Blacks next week. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I suppose this, this is the time for contradiction because I was yeah. really listening to the pod last week and I was like, I can't believe we didn't talk about it. We talked about it beforehand. Yeah. So in 2013, I met Rory Best's uh, dad in the pub after the match. And the sort of the, the initial shock and the disappointment had, had sort of worn off at that stage. And then just like the the vibrancy of the match, and we were, everybody was sort of chatting about it. And it was like, it was a Sunday evening. Um, and everyone was just on the razz. <laughs> like, Monday be damned. And uh, Best's father-in-law was saying that so his, his daughter had been recounting to him, Rory Best's wife, about how normally you, you can't get two words out of Rory on the phone during the week. But... He'd been, uh, he'd been like just full of chat in the build-up to the Australia match, and she was there going, "What's going on here?" And she, and he was, he was told this, and he goes, "Oh, they're not thinking about the Aussie match. Like all the focus must be on the Kiwi match." And then, you know, subsequent conversation, that seems to have been the way that they had approached it. That they were just like that. That entire the All Black match loomed so large for them that this was this was what they were looking for. Um, and I think it's inevitable that the same thing had happened. That not that they disrespected Argentina, but they really, really wanted to beat New Zealand, and you can only have one big focus. Yeah, that's what I've been thinking. But this is supposition or uh, placing something, not placing words in their mouth. But I can only imagine that you know they have been looking at that since the end of the. Uh, Australia tour and going this is the reason I'm playing rugby is to beat the All Blacks in November that's the reason why I'm playing for the next five months you know they're not thinking about these, these are like the, the well established guys Roy Best Johnny Sexton Peter O'Mahony uh, CJ Stander like, uh, there's quite a number of them Devon Tone they're going this is what mm. I'm looking forward to this year it's the chance to play the All Blacks again and beat them you know they're not necessarily thinking because at this stage, like this is before the Heineken Cup is is in the melting pot, really. You know, it's, there's only two games into the Heineken Cup. Yeah. They're just thinking about beat the All Blacks, beat the All Blacks, beat the All Blacks. Thunder's in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Have to give credit to the forwards. <laughs> Referee blows for half time. Mm. Let's talk about the All Blacks for a bit. Okay. Um, I'm interested in this Steve Hansen quote. Um, it's moments like this when you've had a bit of adversity, you've got your, set, your sails to the wind, stand up and be strong with your convi convictions about where you're going, he said. 
Uh, we've tried to change how we want to play and we're still stuck between the old way and the new way. We haven't got it right yet. When we get it right, we'll see some big improvements. Talk about cryptic enough there, Steve. But um, I think you, you identified a couple yeah, of things there. Well, well, I, I have two questions and I know you don't like my double-party double questions, but um, where are they going and what was wrong with the old way? Um, um, they... Again, we referred to last week. I was surprised with how good New Zealand have been since 2015, having lost primarily Richie McCaw and Dan Carter, irreplaceable. And, you know, you can throw Bowden Barrett back at me and I go, um, And then also another coterie of guys with, you know, Conrad Smith. So we went through all the names again last week and... I think they're kicking it more. I think, and, and I think that's to to play a, a, a more territory-based game. They, certainly, they kicked an awful lot against England. They kicked an awful lot about against us, like mm-hmm. kicking diagonal kicks, turning us, getting the ball in behind us, and forcing the opposition to play in the twenty-two. And then they've picked a very different sort of fullback to what they picked in 2011, 2015, where they had. Uh, like a real like Mills Mullian or Israel Dag, like a, a proper f- like a, a Rob Carney type of fullback. Did Barrett like a, not play fifteen in came on. He came on the yeah, came on and scored yeah. try near the end, but he didn't start whereas now they're picking Damian McKenzie as a second playmaker. So they they're gonna have Bowden Barrett and McKenzie. Um and they be they be the big changes. And I think the other thing about New Zealand that's very important that they with what Graham Henry and Steve Hansen is that the game plan is very, very simple. Very simple. Like Ted, Graham Henry. Graham Henry was actually in Dublin with Leo Cullen. Um, I saw them walking around on Saturday afternoon. Um, I presume Exchanging Henry was there. protein strands. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they were... It, it, it like... Graham Henry had all these sort of moves that he wanted to play. And he, he recounts about how Darren Carter just said to him, nah, nah, Ted, like, why is it too complicated? And he'd end up giving, like, four moves to Darren Carter to play in a match. And, like, they vary the four moves from match to match. But, they, you know, they just play, and Carter would just choose from them, whatever he wanted to do. And what they became really good at was choosing which side to attack. And, they'd, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd have options either side. You know, like, would, would, they, would they come back blind? They played that 1-3-3-1, uh, three, three, so like what mm. Pat Lamb made. So they played that sort of structure. They were big on that. And then just running straight, being able to give pop passes, and then having certain work-ons. And they talk about, like, Graham Henry would refer to Owen Franks developing his passing skills and how Franks had made a pass in a match. And how they were really pleased with that because that that had been a work on for Franks. That had been an area that they'd focused for improvement because everyone on the team had to play like that. But the thing is that Joe, if were Joe Schmidt to end up coaching the All Blacks, he would be a different coach than Wayne Schmidt. Sorry, than uh, Wayne Smith. Yeah, uh, Henry and Steve Hansen, who you know the. That the Hydra has looked after New Zealand rugby for sixteen years. Sixteen years. Um, in that Schmidt comes up with very particular plays, whereas these guys don't. And if you can match them for intensity, 
there isn't a huge amount of sophistication in their game. If anything, it is the most New Zealand style of rugby. Like it's it's the basics done to the highest possible uh, degree of accuracy. They're and also capable of the, the extremely idea. special as well. Yeah, the extremely special. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I'll go back to that. And it's, but it's the idea of like Plan B being lower, harder, faster. Like if Plan A doesn't work, go to Plan B, lower, harder, faster. And if Plan B doesn't work, ratchet it up to lowest, hardest, fastest. And if you can withstand that, shit. Yeah, then what happens now? Yeah, well, then and that's and that's that's where the box do. So the the other thing on that is like what they they practice those out the back one handed passes with two guys tackling you. Like they they have a five meter drill where you run up and like you're outnumbered in attack by the defenders, and you've got to try to make those passes. So as much as they sort of talk about like just putting it through the hands and like keeping running your straight lines. They also practice. Yeah, like, it's one of the, the it's, uh, it's the reason I keep on trying to interrupt you there is because uh, they won't shut up. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's just because it's total fallacy that the All Blacks only do the basics really well. The All Blacks do everything really well. They do everything. They do the basics. They do the middling things. They do the super hard things really well. They uh, like their handling is the best. It is the best handling, and so I'm like it's when it's when people start <laughs> changing their like idea of what the basics is. So they got thrown it like a triple skip forty yards on the flat, like oh, it's just the basics done really well. It isn't my bollocks. Like, to for a basic to mean something, it actually has to mean like a single integer thing that is a, it's a small, discernibly identifiable thing. You can't just say everything is just an extrapolation of a basic. Then it's then it's not basic. You know? Do you remember their tries? They scored when they were chasing us in Chicago, one of which is Bodie Barrett, like throwing out one at the back door. Yeah. After skinning someone on like the, in like a yard of space to Ben yeah. Smith, and the other one was uh, T.J. Paranara ca- catching a reverse pass inside him, which was yeah. like behind him, like. And the other one was like I can't think Ken Reid scored, but from Naholo just we talked about it briefly. Like Naholo just skinned all our players and ran around and then ran over a few, and then just bobbled it back inside. That's not like if if you can say that's the basics. It's just being much, uh, much more sophisticated in terms of your balance, quicker, more aggressive runner, better hand-eye coordination in terms of throwing a fend. Okay, that's the basics. Um, um, do you think? But it's not. We we had a brief discussion last week about kind of like the um, supposed. Decline of the, the quality of players. Do you think there's in a, in in New Zealand? In, in well, not, not not the quality of players generally, but like the players have they've sort of passed the their yeah. their peak. As in, like Kieran Reid is if he gets to the World Cup, which I assume he will, he's brilliant. Uh, and it's only two games that he's looked like an eight out of ten player, or he probably had a lower than that. I guess. Also, come back from a serious injury and, and probably couldn't feel his hand for most of the game. <laughs> but like. He's going to be on like 130 something caps if he gets to the World Cup. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, he will. He'll be, it's yeah, well, well in like the 120s. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I hadn't considered that. Um, there's other positions as well. And then you have the, the question over whether they have two like really talented steady Eddies in the center, but they don't have Ma'anonu, which I think is, I think. An underrated miss for them. Artie Savay is very good. Um, Liam Squire, I 
don't think is particularly good. I think there's the it's a curiously that they're, underpowered back row. There's also I I think that you've pinpointed the exact things which I would ask questions of as well. That there are there are more gaps in this team than I can remember in New Zealand teams. You know, principally because the two World Cup winning teams had a lot of shared personnel. Uh, I know that there were changes in, um, for example. Like um, what was a uh, Richie Kahui was a centre who played winger on the first team, the 2011 mm. team. A guy who was an outstandingly talented player, <laughs> horrific injury record, and ended up retiring after. Well, not retiring, but going off and playing Japan for a fortune, just because that's what he needed to do to earn enough money to get by. And and during that tournament, Mills Molina was dropped for Israel Dak during mm-hmm. the tournament, and it yeah. wasn't. That wasn't like uh, it wasn't just like oh showtime. It was that's what it came to. You know, Dag had really hit form, and and he got he got the nod. And, and something similar happened in twenty fifteen with Milner Scudder, who wouldn't or maybe was had come into the starting team in the in the summer of twenty fifteen, but then became a like a, a big part of that all black team in the tournament. Uh, so I, I look at I look at Crotty and I look at uh, Jack Cote, both of them are really good. And they showed again they were really good uh, against us. Uh, more individually than as a pairing, I thought. But how can you possibly hope to replace the pairing of uh, Nanu and Smith? Backed they, up, backed up by Sonny Bill. Backed up by Sonny Bill. And this is a question for you, actually. Do you think that they will go back to Sonny Bill and leave. Well, Nanu, they're talking about Nanu coming back. Are they? Yeah. God, that's the last thing we need. (laughs) Um, And I think the the team just seems to become the ultimate Steve Hansen team in that it seems to be full of guys who are... I talk, like I talked about like the difference between Savea and Sam Kane. I just don't see it. Like I'd always pick Artie Savea. Mm-hmm. And when I slow matches down and look at them, it only reinforces my belief rather than sort of trying to change what I think. So but there he is picking Sam Kane, picking like Crotty and Goodhue in the middle of the pitch, yeah. uh picking a load of guys who are really good at doing the basics and yeah. running straight and hitting their pop passes and getting the either side of the rook. But if you can ratchet up the pace and live with what they do, there isn't showtime yeah. sort of player. And maybe that's what Damian McKenzie is. Mm. Mm. You know, and maybe, again, like we, like to go back, do you, do you end up picking Sapoanga so you can play Bowden Barrett a fullback because you want to have two playmakers. Like yeah. playing, playing two, having two playmakers allows you to have a lot more guys who are sort of straight down the middle. Yeah. Um, but also bringing in somebody like Sonny Bill... Uh, or and I know that he's very much in the conversation. It's not as though it's not as though uh, he's not Zebo. Steve Hansen hasn't Zeboed or Rene Range. Or yeah, <laughs> um, but that he by every aspect, by his ability on the pitch, by his size, by his the fact that he has a you know really high profile attracts attention on the pitch. Mm. And Crotty is the, the classic grey man in the 
Pat McCabe mould. Um, and do you think that that they need? I wouldn't call it razzle dazzle, but that they need fewer grey men. That they need well. Here's a leading question because I tell you, I think that they need a Kiriyohani at six. You know, instead of Liam Squire. Like, they already have enough line-out forwards in that team when they have Ritalik, White Falcon, Reed. And Reed. And you're just there going, give this guy, give the, give the, this, like, compared to Liam Squire, Kiriwani is like a cross between Carl Lewis and Andre the Giant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hansen must really love Liam Squire's mullet, though. <laughs> Do you think um, there's any strength to this idea which is basically that Aussie team are just so Aussie yeah Aussie team are so like woe begone and used to being beaten by New Zealand and the RGs like know they're going to lose nearly every game Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until Razzie Erasmus was like let's have a go with these guys they're Razzie Razzie found a way to make his his team go at at New Zealand and since then every game has been tight Good point. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think to go back to the, the first two teams, Australia have too many teams and Argentina have too few. Australia could do with having a greater concentration of their best players. Uh, Three teams. Concentrate more of the money. And I, I, don't, I don't know how you split up the money. Um, but like, it's a huge place. And you know, you're trying to stretch it out to Perth and to Melbourne and it, it's a hard ask. I understand why they're trying to do it. Um, I think the split for, for for all teams is like, you know, how, how do you get your professional ranks and then what happens What happens below that? Like the, the idea of semi-pro, there isn't the money in the game for a semi-pro, really. Like not in any sort of conceivable, you're just throwing money away and like after the... Anyway, whereas Argentina only have the Haguars. So like some guy gets offered like 700,000 but you know euros a year to go to France he's just like yeah screw the Haguars. <laughs> they're gonna pick me for the World Cup and you, you can't have 15 guys doing that whereas Argentina could really do with having 30 players playing Argentina or what could Argentina could really do like you know Pichot talked about international rugby and you know the, the sort of the trade-off and working towards the common season the biggest beneficiaries of a common rugby season is Argentina. Yeah, Pichot's... Like, Pichot's I, platiny, come on. What's that? Pichot's platiny. We'll, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I, I, I have very... Like, he was he was never my favourite uh, Argentine player, uh, and he's not my favourite Argentine administrator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hugo Porta. Uh. <laughs> So I think I think that's pretty deserving of a bit more focus, and we can't give it now. But if if you think of like the Argentinian guys playing a load of rugby and flying all over the southern hemisphere in the our summertime, and all their players kick an absolute lumps out of each other up in France during our winter time and our springtime and our autumn time, if they all played at the same time, Argentina would be really really strong because you'd have guaranteed international windows. And the RGs wouldn't have to fund their own game at a professional level. They could just get the French to do it and then just go, oh, it's an international window. We're going to pick. So like, no wonder Pichat likes the idea so much. Anyhow, that's that's for another day. You haven't answered my question about um, the... That's because you asked two of them. Kiwis yeah. wobbling ever since 
the game in Wellington. Yeah, I thought I thought that they. I mean, they won I could, three of those games. I, I exactly. Since. Firstly, they did win three of them. They came back from. Uh, I wouldn't say the dead in two games, but they came back. They were they slipped and then came back in two of them, and then they just had two big uh, mountain to climb against us. Got nine points down, not being able to score a try was a new feeling for them. Um, there is this feeling which Nick uh, Evans, the former. All black out half and for a long time to Cardiff, Cardiff, Cardiff but Harlequins out half wrote that like that this has happened in time for New Zealand that they have between nine and ten months to look at where their stress points are where they where they failed under strain so to speak in, in engineering terms and then to remedy those which is a very plausible argument um it is the end of the season for them. They've had a long season. You pointed out when it was mentioned how many caps uh, that uh, Scott Barrett had won. Like that, he he won his twenty eighth cap. Was it twenty eighth? Yeah, twenty eight caps against Ireland on last uh, Saturday, having won his first against Ireland in twenty sixteen, which means he's played fourteen internationals a year for the last two years. Mm. Um. Like that's a lot of that's a lot of tests, you know. When you're when you're coming to the end of like when you're playing your thirteenth or fourteenth test of the year, having had a full season of Super Rugby as well, like you you are fatigued. Um. So. I felt that they underperformed against England. I felt that they performed at a middling to acceptable level against us, and. That wasn't good enough to beat us. I think I think they are wobbling. I think that they got a comprehensive series win against France, but I switched off. I think two of those matches when I sort of got interrupted as well, in disgust at the at the refereeing decisions, and I thought that France started really well against them. Now th- there's a big difference between starting really well against New Zealand and keeping it going for eighty minutes, and I don't I don't think Brunel's French team would have been able to do it. Um, but I just go back to losing the caliber of player that they have done and the amount of common personnel between 2011. Like the All Black have won back to back. It's not even like they're trying to, uh, they're going for a three peat. Like most teams, in my experience, since the World Cup has been introduced, are brilliant for the two years after it. Mm-hmm. And then they go into decline in the latter two years of their reign because they play with such confidence and then the coach is unwilling to drop guys who are older, more injured and just coming a bit more out of form because he's had such, he's had such, they, they have such confidence and he's had such positive associations with them. But if you look at it, if you go back to when England won, and remember when but England won in 2003, dreadful. and yeah. everyone called him like, especially the, uh, the Australian press called him Dad's Army and kept on making jokes about how old they were because they were old. Mm. And then they fell off a cliff afterwards. And they, they got they did, worse in they the two years after. really well <laughs> to win that tournament. You know, because they went to extra time in a final, like down in Australia in the summer. A bunch of 40 year olds. His jerseys were very tight as well. Not, not quite 40 year olds. But that was, that was a team hugely experienced team and if you if you look at 
that team in terms of the amount of caps that it picked up and compared it to you know really any other team in going for a world cup looking at the world cup next season like that english team was massively experienced and very old um speaking of england uh watching the first half of their game against japan how the fuck did they nearly beat the All Blacks? <laughs> <laughs> it was great to see also, I want to bring this up. Clive Woodward was asked uh, at halftime, having just said that he would hold off Danny Kerr for kicking the ball dead when they were five points down against Japan at home and having played terribly. They were asking what kind of speech he would give. Was it like, would it would they be calm or would they be throwing around teacups and be like, be teacups all over the place? And I couldn't help but think of his classic thinking clearly under pressure. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. You love that. I, I, he, I tweeted about it. I got no reaction. <laughs> I wasted on you guys. I was just thinking of him throwing his uh, teacup out to people. <laughs> Teacups everywhere. Just shouting teacup yeah. people everywhere. Mantras flying around. You're, you're Vincent Brown hairdryer. He kicked a hairdryer at David Beckham, I believe. <laughs> No, no, no. Has anybody ever done that before? <laughs> you know, um, you know that guy uh, who plays the like the uh, <laughs> the consultant for the Tory party in in the thick of it. Yeah, that's Clive Woodward for me. Thunder's <laughs> <laughs> in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. And um, before we finish up our business for the November internationals, Ireland have a game against the U.S. Eagles on Saturday evening. A number of players have already been uh, released back to their provinces, including um, players who <clears throat> I guess would be uh, definitely match day 23, guys like Jack McGrath and Jordan Larmer. Mm. Um, who do you think will start? Uh, it's kind of a curious one to pick. There's definitely some names you know will appear. I think Rhys Ruddock is one of them. Um, but who do you think will, will, will play for Ireland against the Eagles? Yeah, it's a good and, question. And, and, and in particular, why would you make those decisions? Dude, start front row. I, I, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of places up for grabs. I, I think uh, the fact that Jack McGrath has gone back, we expect Killer to start at loose head, not Scandal to start at hooker, and then tight head. I think you've you've ideas. Yeah, I think that um, if if you're given the opportunity to start uh, a provincial combination together, you should it enables all the players to have a degree of familiarity which they otherwise won't have, and enables them to play at their best. So I would start with. With Ryan, uh, John Ryan at tight head, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Aside from his familiarity with Scannell, Kilcoyne, there's also the idea of with the selection for a 31 man World Cup squad in the back of your mind, you are looking for a player who can also double as the ambipropsterous, um, the fifth prop, fifth prop. So Ryan has played on both sides of scrum, albeit an awful lot more as a tight head. Finley Bealham has played both, again, more as a tight head. Realistically, you always want a guy who's played more tight head than more loose head. Yeah. But the key one is Andrew Porter, who up until last year was a loose head and, and is now a tight head. And Porter, well, Ryan was actually the second loose head for the third Australian test, which... I thought it was curious. I thought I thought that Porter had locked that. it down. Mm. I thought Porter had locked it down, given that he started in the Six Nations. Um, tight head or loose head? Sorry, you said loose head. Tight head. 
I should have said tight head. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I would assume that Porter is the second tight head. Me too. Which and he can cover. Well, and I would also say he can cover both sides. So you're sort of your third choice tight head can be a specialist tight head. But I yeah. think I think the two guys. Like, I think Ryan and Beelham. I would. I think I think Beelham's really good. So do I. I think um, both are good. So I would rather have Beelham, but I understand completely the logic for having John mm. Ryan. And John Ryan played well on the tour, so I think that'll be the front row would be Kilcoyne, Scanlon, Ryan. The second row is Ty Byrne, Ian Henderson. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a really exciting second row. Uh, everyone wants to see more of Ty Byrne play. It's 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 unfortunate for him that he um how do, how do you say this? It's unfortunate that he gets to play against worse teams and look really good doing them. You know, it, it does his reputation no harm. So how is it worse for him? It's because he doesn't get to play in the big matches. Mm. You know, Devin Toner and James Ryan went out and blew the doors off against New Zealand. Did exactly what they were tasked to do. And Henderson came on and did, you know, people consistently look at second row's job as, as a line player. I also just have to look at it as somebody who wins contacts. And Hendo won a load of contacts when he came on for Devon Toner. Uh, he didn't travel to uh, Chicago to play. Henderson, sorry, yeah, Henderson didn't travel to Chicago. So I think he's I think he's available for selection for this one. And it's a, it's an, it's a position which is going to cause... Uh, a lot of sleepless nights for Joe Schmidt because it's difficult to know what the makeup of his World Cup squad is going to be in terms of the forwards to backs breakdown on a macro level and then on a micro level, second row to back row breakdown. Yeah, exactly. So it sort of brings us on to when they went to Japan, uh, the three second rows where the as yet uncapped uh, James Ryan, uh, Devin Toner and Kieran Treadwell. And he six guys in the back row and six very sort of back rowy guys like mm. the, uh, Levy, Vanderfleer, O'Donoghue, and O'Donnell. So arguably four open sides, and with Jack Cohn and Reese Ruddock. So doing a bit of an Eddie O'Sullivan on it, except with the sevens rather than the sixes. But definitely like six guys were who were in the back row, three yeah. guys in the second. And part of that is who you get to choose from. Like Kieran Treadwell is just not in the conversation. Quinn Rue must have been injured, or else Joe surely would have brought him on that tour. Um, but Quinn Rue is, is like, and Quinn Rue played in the Six Nations last year, but that's because Ty Byrne was playing at Wales. Mm. So you're looking at those four guys, you would assume, again, that will go to the World Cup and that one of them at least will be considered as back row cover. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and the point has been made that Ty Byrne has actually played a bit of number eight for the Scarlets. Like quite a bit. And if you're going, Jesus, you just want to get your best 23 players involved somewhere. Mm-hmm. Can you get Ty Byrne and Ian Henderson into the same squad somehow? Mm. Um, but also is, you know, when you look at, um, sorry, we, we'll go we'll go back to talking about the, the blind side because it feeds right into this. Reese yeah. Ruddock is going to captain the team. I assume he's going to captain the team. He's a huge favourite of Joe Schmidt in terms of how frequently he captains Joe Schmidt teams going back. He captained the Leinster team back in 2010, 11, when he was maybe 20 years old. I think he was captain down of that Japanese tour. He was, yeah. 
Uh, and he was captain against the Italians. But we're looking at, sorry, Ruddock, Murphy and Conan. So just go on about Ruddock there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's where you go with how many back rows that you pick in terms of your your World Cup selection. And the obvious correlation I draw with Rich Ruddock is Declan Kidney picking Leo Cullen to go in uh, the 2011 World Cup squad as a guy who was never going to uh, pick in, in a big game but was his second Second captain. His dirt <laughs> is dirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe somebody else has used that phrase. <laughs> um, he was a second captain. Remember, he picked Shane Jennings and Leo Cullen, guys who had quite obviously just won their second Heineken Cup together. Deccan Kidney wasn't a particular fan of either player. Didn't they really. Both, they both went to Leicester after he coached Leinster. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they were both absolute classic pros. And there was a role for them, which was as Donald's Donuts, you know, captain of the dirt trackers. Now, the, the, we were talking about the sort of the, the players highlighted in green. The, so the guys that Joe has brought on every single tour that he's selected. One of those players is Jordy Murphy. Mm, this is, uh, this so is why it's really interesting. This is, this is the trade-off between Reese. This is, this is, if you get Tyburn, Ian Henderson and Kent, one of, them is, one of them as a six. So you've got your... The three guys who started plus Levy are... They all look like they're going to travel. Mm -hmm. Then you throw in Sean O'Brien somewhere. If mm -hmm. Sean is still cobbled together at the end of the season, you know, hopefully. Um, so then all of a sudden, like Jack Conan... Needs to put in a huge match, having toured Australia. Yeah. Um, Jordy Murphy goes on every single tour, but like, do they need a third open side? Well, see, that's the. I think the, the a huge toss up uh, is going to be between two Josh Smith favorites, Sean O'Brien and, and Jordy Murphy. Like Jordy Murphy came off the bench uh, against New Zealand, did a good job, you know, but. The difference, if you're playing New Zealand again in 10 months' time, for example, of Jordy Murphy coming off the bench or Sean O'Brien coming off the bench is, to me, that's where a guy who has been a Schmidt absolute favourite in Jordy Murphy loses out. Presuming that Shawnee is... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Some yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making it's, it's a conversation that we've had, yeah, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. Um... Okay, but so I think I think I think what could happen is that you end up that uh, like none of those three players, neither Reese Ruddock, nor Jack Conan, nor Jordy Murphy go, because you end up going Josh Van der Fleer, Dan Levy are the open sides, CJ Sander, uh, and Peter O'Mahony are number eight blindside respectively. Sean O'Brien is the back, the back row cover, six, seven, eight, and then. Ty Byrne is a blindside cover. Yeah. Blindside number eight cover. Yeah. That's kind of how it looks at the moment. So th those guys have big matches. Uh, they, well, they need, they need, this isn't, this isn't just like fulfill the fulfill the fulfill the fulfill for them. This is a game where uh, I think Jack Conan needs. All of them need. Yeah, they all need big performances. They need to put down, because... Like, Stander van der Fleer and Yeah, we've, we've gone through the permutations there. Yeah, so I, I put think down a huge marker against the All Blacks. Scrum half, we talk Cooney and Car... Scrum half, out half, Cooney, Carberry. Yeah, well, Marmion now is written off for three months after soldiering through a bad foot-ankle injury, very impressively. Um, to me, 
I think that uh, Luke McGrath is f- f- sort of falling into a um, super Sean, sub. Sean Cronin role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cooney realistically going to go to the World Cup if if everyone's fit. Don't see it. And not that he doesn't deserve to. He's playing sensationally good rugby for a year and a half now. But it looks on the selection so far that it's Murray, Marmion, McGrath. Yeah. Cooney got a minute down in Australia when Schmidt could see him up close and personal for a protracted period of time. Marmion played on one leg and played extremely well. Full stop. Never mind playing extremely well on one leg. But played on one leg um, for both the big matches, the Argentina and the and the New Zealand match. So he's he's definitely going to go. And it's previously stepped in on short notice to beat England. And yeah, and then Luke McGrath had a great match against Argentina. Um, he did the same job against New Zealand. I thought he was excellent when he came off the bench. And you know has sort of clambered over Cooney. So that that's the other things. Joey, they're obviously the Joey minutes things. Centers. You McCluskey and Arnold, I think I would like to see Tom Farrell, but I can understand why. I'd also like would like to see Addison play in the centre. Mm. Um and play Conway fullback. But I think sort of backline what we were thinking was Sweetenham, Conway, and Addison as your out as your as your back three with Addison at fullback and then McCluskey and Arnold in centre. Now Robbie Henshaw's out of the mix, but he's going to go somewhere. So, have any of them got a realistic aspiration? Conway's pretty. Conway and Con- Addison. Conway certainly does. Yeah. Conway might end up being. Uh, Addison does um, because he's uh, he's not the poor man's. He's the the uh, what do they call us the hard stretched middle earners. Squeeze middle. He's the squeeze middle man's uh, Jared Payne. <laughs> um, he's so similar in a lot. He actually looks like he has quite a lot of time in the ball. He's a lovely footballer. Uh, he's not as he's not the elite player that, that Jared Payne was. I I'm not in love with that. Uh, I'm not in love with that backline. I think there are, are players who. You know, I would prefer to see uh, Tierno Hanron still in the mix as a as a fullback. He's not. I'd like to see Addison at thirteen ahead of Sam Arnold, who I think is uh, very gamey, but a little bit, well, not a little bit, limited, quite limited. And Adam, no. Adam hasn't done enough this season at all. You know, and last season he got uh, he got he played against Argentina, picked up an injury. And then Larmer and Lowe and Barry Daly all zipped past him. Like Barry Daly scored 13 tries last season. Uh, Larmer got probably 10 or something like that. It'd be great if Chris Farrell was fit. Yeah. To play second centre. And then you wouldn't have a you wouldn't have a choice to make there. You you definitely have Addison at full back. But I think for a lot of guys, there aren't that many spots left in the plane. Yeah. You know, and you have good players like Rory Scannell not getting a look in. And McCluskey's, McCluskey's played well. Like McCluskey was a call celebre a few seasons ago, and now he's not really in the conversation because the yeah. three centres are so dominant and there's only two centre positions. Yeah. Um, but he's playing better rugby than ever. He's playing super stuff. He's playing super stuff. He's not still stuck on the cap, is he? He's got another one. He got another one against Fiji. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing McCluskey play. 
So am I. So did you, did you end up, sorry there, with Addison at 15? Addison at Addison 15. Conway yeah, and Sweden It seems more imperative that you know, we figure out who plays at 15 than at second centre to me. Yeah, I agree. I think I think at second centre, our first choice is, is Ringo's our second choice is Encho. Our third choice is uh, Chris Farrell. Chris Farrell. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at 12, our first choice is, it doesn't matter whether it's Bundy or... Yeah, we have we have or an Henshaw. X and Y rather than mm-hmm. one and two. It's Bundy and Henshaw. Why why do you say fullback rather than second centre? Uh, I think we have less well we were just stretched a lot at centre in the Six Nations. If you remember, we mm. suffered injuries and obviously Ringrose wasn't fit at the start of it. Bundy played throughout it, but we went through three combinations. I think it was just three. Um as in Farrell got one game, mm-hmm. uh, Henshaw got injured in the second game, and then Ringrose played the last two, mm-hmm. and it just felt like we explored and those were yeah, all successful. like they were all big performances. They were all like um, Farrell was so good against Wales, man, match. Yeah, so that like even the guy who was unheralded was um, a big success. A success, whereas. We look more like if Rob Carney gets injured, we. I, I mean, I know Jordan Larmer is absolutely. No, we're skinny at fullback. I wonderful, but I, I think there's everyone's just like, oh, is has he played that many games there? You know, is he? Yeah. Is he going to play there? Is he going to play winger? Uh, it just it seems more important to test someone there. You see, this this is the trade off. This is the reason that I, I kind of picked you up on it is that. If Larmer needs to play more matches, just play him at fullback in this match. Oh, and I, they, they, they haven't done that. So they've they've released Larmer back and then you're sort of going, oh, is Larmer going to play in the wing? Like if he's going to play fullback at all, he's not going to get playing fullback playing in the wing. And Larmer's like Keith Earls, like Luke Fitzgerald. He's like a lot of these. Now, he's not as valuable about those guys, about not playing at fullback at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's... He's young and he's really quick and he's really balanced and he's really elusive and he hasn't had serious injuries. He has had serious injuries, like he missed the under-20s World Cup, but he, he hasn't lost any of that. Um, so versatility is his friend, but for any player to spe- like for any player to play at their best, y- you can't really, like versatility shouldn't be your calling card. Like your, your, your ability should be your calling card. So like if Larmer wants to be a fullback, he should play fullback. And but he probably just wants to go to the World Cup more than anything else. And it's it's the decision that's it it's it's the decision over the next twelve months for him because he can really just decide to play fullback after the World Cup, having been to it mm-hmm. um for the next four years. Like when Rob Carney, like, geez, Rob must be about to retire after the World Cup, given the amount of injuries that he's had. Given, given the amount of the length of his career already. Given the length of his career already, um, just given like the, the concentration required now, it won't go easy. Like Darcy said, they would have had to take him out of the back of Donnybrook and shoot him. But you're like, it just happens, mm. you know. When the end comes, it it just happens like that. So anyway, that that that, that I just it's, it's going to be a curious one for Larmer over this season. Yeah, and I I agree. I was surprised he was taken out of of the reckoning for this selection of this match. I assumed. That he would be played at fifteen again. I assumed it was a Carberry, Larmer like for like that. 
one has to be one they want one to be the backup ten, they want one to be about the backup fifteen. It's all about playing him in that position. Um and maybe maybe Joe Schmidt is looking at Addison and going, This guy is he's gonna be my my backup thirteen and fifteen. I can put him in a game and he'll do a job for me. Yeah. So it's I don't think we'll we'll figure that out from playing against America though. No. Sure. But exciting nonetheless. Yes. Yeah.